Okay, the first thing to say is welcome, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Particularly at this time of year, just before Christmas, I'm amazed how many people come. Um, so it's wonderful to see you all here for this uh, all too brief a time, unfortunately, uh, just this weekend. So what I want to do just this evening is kind of just introduce a little bit of what we're going to be doing, talk a little bit about what mindfulness is in this tradition, particularly related to the body. And we'll pick this up tomorrow. But first of all, I just want to say a couple of, well, practical, yes, I think we'll say they're practical things. The first is there's one enormous hindrance to doing retreats. It's called the mobile phone. Um, Because you don't actually get on retreat if you still have your mobile phone on. So I would really, really encourage you uh, to switch it off. Now, this doesn't mean, for example, if you have somebody who's really dependent on you um, to be completely out of contact, but just to be aware, obviously, to not talk in the grounds if you have to contact somebody. But if you don't have that situation where somebody's really dependent on you and requires for you to check up on them or anything like that, then it is good just to switch it off. It is only two days. Uh, it's only two, well, it's not even two full days. So, you know, you might suffer withdrawal symptoms, but it's worth it. It really is of, of just, you know, taking this time for yourself um, just for these few days to be here, to really be here, because this is what it's about, uh, to be actually fully present. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of technology doesn't allow us to be fully present. It's always pulling us out taking us somewhere else, taking us back into, uh, back into the world. This is your time. It's, uh, I would actually say it's a, it's a privilege you've given yourself um, to actually be on retreat just for these couple of days. Um, I'd really encourage you to use it properly. So that's the first practical issue. There is another set of what I call practical guidelines, which are very important here, particularly at Guy House, they're generally the ethical principles by which we live, certainly in the Buddhist communities and Buddhist world in general, lay people tend to um, adhere to a set of practical guidelines which are really like tools for inquiring into your ethical life. Really, really basic ones. Um, unfortunately, when you see popular books on Buddhism, they're not terribly well explained you get another list. Uh, It looks like a bit of a sort of reduced Ten Commandments. And it says things like, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie, don't take drugs, and things like this. And I just want to say a couple of words about these, because these are the principles which we hold um, whilst on retreat. I actually believe that they're not just to be held whilst on retreat. They're really good principles to take out into your ordinary life, into your ordinary day-to-day life, to get you to reflect on what you're doing. You know, these are not moralizing, they're not thou shouts and thou shalt nots. Um, what they are are ways of beginning to inquire into our ethical, moral lives and you know, to make us aware of what's going on in that dimension of our life. And so the first one, really, you've heard me saying, there's the reduced version, is don't kill. Uh, it doesn't do it much favour, actually, because in the original languages, when you translate this out of the original languages, A, it's called a rule of training. And you undertake to hold this rule of training um, for the duration of the training, which could be the whole of your life. 
um, but certainly whilst we're here on retreat, to refrain from harming living beings. Now, I hope you can hear something that's going on in that. I think the, 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 the Buddha, obviously the fountainhead of all of this, I think made these precepts, in a sense, deliberately vague. You know, he could have said just don't kill, much easier, much easier in a sense to follow, but this actually says don't harm living things. Yeah. And I hope you can appreciate that harm here, um, you know, perhaps most of us wouldn't kill, but we might harm, and sometimes inadvertently we engage in acts of harm. Um, when we're not mindful, for example, um, we can harm. This is a principle, this principle of harmlessness, which is very, very important in this tradition uh, within which you know, I'm teaching and from which I'm teaching here, uh, this principle of not harming. And this includes you, not harming yourself as well by doing destructive things. Uh, certainly inquiring into your activities of harmfulness in this world because often we do do that. As I say, sometimes we engage in it unwittingly uh, with very, very little awareness. So hence a really good reason for developing this, this thing that we call mindfulness, which I'll speak more about this evening. The second of the precepts is, um, well, it could be written down, as I say, again in the shortened version, as don't steal. It's not that at all. Again, in the original version, it says, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking that which is not offered freely. Now, I hope again that you can hear that says a lot more than just don't steal, because we appropriate all sorts of things. You know, I used to be very concerned about telling students in university (coughs) not to take other people's ideas and pass them off as your own, plagiarism. Um, So that's just one example of the way that we can appropriate that which is not freely offered to us. It obviously includes not stealing in the sense that we really understand that. But it includes far more, again, it includes all of those forms of appropriation that we engage in. Often, uh, again, not really thinking about them. So this precept is there to make you aware when we're taking something which you haven't A, asked for or been offered in some way or another. And I can think of all those little minor things that often go on in daily life, not just in, you know, not in places like this so much, but just in daily life, you know, the appropriation of the paperclip, the telephone call, you know, the time, taking time, and all these sorts of things where you're taking what is not offered freely. The third precept is usually, actually it shows a lot about the West, the way it's usually translated, which is I, refrain, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Actually in the original language it's far more powerful. It actually says that I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. In other words, the sensual bit is very, very important. Sexuality is obviously an important dimension to the sensuality. It's one expression of our sensuality here. Um, but you know, when you come on retreat like this, you know, I still see a lot of expressions of sensuality. And I'm not, this is not being sort of finger-wagging or anything like that, because one of the things I observe often in retreat, and I usually say it as part of the talk, is what I see is a series of eating sessions interrupted by meditation. 
You know, that's what often happens. There's a great deal of focus on food. Um, We suddenly become so concerned about food because this is your entertainment of the day. (laughs) You You don't get a lot of other distractions during the rest of the day, so food becomes enormously important, that dimension of sensuality. Now, this is not a denial of the senses, so please don't hear it of that. It's actually looking at what I call sensual moderation, seeing what we actually need to appreciate the senses but not to crave to have them indulged. Yeah, and obviously it includes you know, basically looking at one's sexual relations and you know, um, really inquiring into that. So it's about inquiry into sensuality, I would say primarily, and sexuality as an adjunct to that. So this is again another very important dimension of, of obs- observing and looking and our moral, ethical lives and characters. The fourth precept. Um, fourth precept here is about speech. Well, that's a strange one. You've probably just been asked to be silent for the rest of the thing. But I don't know if you've noticed, actually, we never stop talking, even when we're silent. You know, our thoughts are running into stories that we're telling ourselves about ourselves and the stories that we tell about others. You know, um, by the time you finish this retreat, you'll have probably had all sorts of fantasies about other people in this room, um, about who and how they are in this world. You know, so our, our minds are running, we're fabricating, we're fictionalizing, we're creating narratives often that we live in. I don't know if this sounds familiar to ordinary life, does it? You know, this is what we're often doing in ordinary life. This is our minds running ahead of us again. The actual precept goes, I'll take a rule of training to refrain from false speech. So it really means looking at the character in the retreat situation of a lot of those thoughts. What are you projecting onto others? Yeah. Because often it's false, it's fictional. Can you just be with others without doing that? Or if you are doing it, to really notice it. To notice that tendency to want to embellish, to fabricate, to create stories about others, those sitting in the room with you at this present moment. This is often expanded, actually, to look at all forms of speech. So it doesn't just include false speech. It includes speech which is harsh, judgmental, critical. That can be speech about yourself as well. As we know, one of the things that often comes to the forefront is this inner critic This inner critic, that carping mind that's always telling you that you're not good enough about something. To watch it again, to see it, but not necessarily to believe in it. That inner critic. So we look at harsh speech, the judgments are also not only that we pass on ourselves, but the judgments that we pass on others. Again, it's something we do in ordinary life. It's certainly not going to stop when you come on meditation retreat. Um, you'll probably still continue to do it. Then they go into refraining from divisive speech, the speech that creates enmity. Well, hopefully you won't engage in that here, but again, it's one to look at in ordinary life, just to see the way that we often do that, the gossip. The gossip that um, that often sets one person against another, the backbiting that is there. So these kind of shade off into each other, I hope you can see, because often they're not true, the things that we say. They're often particularly harsh, and they divide one person against another. 
Then finally, there is what is called idle chatter. Now, if you actually lined all of those up, I mean, idle chatter, if you think about it, is speech that's not really doing that much. Um, in fact, while you're sitting here, you're probably engaged in a lot of idle chatter. You know, just the mind chuntering away to itself, um, but not really doing anything, not actually creating anything, you know, not saying anything meaningful here. Now, at this point, and I'm going to say it again tonight, I usually say, well, if you actually line all of these up, you know, to re- refrain from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter. Is there anything else left to say? Because actually that constitutes a hell of a lot of our speech acts. Yeah. Not all, but if we take that out as a form of inquiry into our lives, perhaps it would make us a little bit more restrained in the kind of speech that we operate with. And so that speech really becomes meaningful and connected. And the Buddha had a lovely phrase about speech in general. He said, beware of those with the dagger hidden behind the teeth. Beware of those with the dagger hidden behind the teeth because those verbal daggers can be just as painful often as the physical ones. And then finally, the last precept, um, again worth inquiring, particularly at this time of year, is a rule of training, which is to refrain from basically taking substances which cloud the mind. Yeah. Um, I like killed you talking about that this time of year. You know, but you've got to see why the Buddha is, is actually saying this. Yeah. The tenor of what we're doing in meditational practice, in mindfulness practice, if we just, if we just call it that, even not just meditation, but mindfulness practice, the tenor of what we engage in is about developing clarity and presence of mind. You know, to actually be here. Uh, to be here and to be as fully awake as we possibly can. Um, to show up for your own life, actually. This is what we're trying to do with all mindfulness practice. From the smallest mindfulness practices to the, you know, the sort of more profound practices that can be engaged in. This is what we're trying to do, to clarify the nature of the mind, to make that mind less disturbed, to stop it from being so rocky and so distorting. Um, And yet, we might take substances which deliberately do the opposite of that. So I don't think the Buddha, I'm kind of joking about it earlier on, but I don't think the Buddha is a killjoy. He's just saying, really, these two things are pulling against each other. They're not heading in the same direction. In fact, in the initial stages, um, he didn't actually have a prohibition against his followers uh, at all uh, taking alcohol until he found a monk drunk one day. (laughs) Um, And then he instigated a rule, and this is not for lay people, but this was a rule for for monks in particular, they should be uh, basically abstinent as regards any kind of drink or drugs. Now, I think in our cases, it means inquiring into it again. So please do not hear these as a set of prescriptions, but more like a set of ways of inquiring into your own life. Does, for example, the drink that you might have at this period of the year, does that really disturb the nature of your mind? Look at it, see with it, reflect on it, if you do indulge in that. We ask you here, obviously, to remain abstinent. But these five precepts are five rules, 
really, or training rules, which help to guide us in our path through life. Yeah. So, as, uh, as I said, they're not stated as absolute rules. Yeah. They're not stated as absolute rules. They're not prescriptive. The Buddha is really just asking us to, as he does in so much of his teaching, to inquire into um, these aspects and dimensions of our day-to-day existence. And that obviously includes the retreat period. So it's kind of practical and not so practical in many ways, but ultimately everything the Buddha teaches really is aimed at practicality. And let me get this right clear right from the very start. And basically the dimension of Buddhism, because Buddhism, as many of you will know, if you've even just picked up a book on, I don't know, kind of, Buddhist traditions, you'll see there's a vast number of traditions. It's a huge plethora of different forms. It's not so much Buddhism as Buddhisms uh, that you find. Often they're very cultural. Like, for example, Zen Buddhism in Japan. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism obviously originating from Tibet, Chinese Buddhism. And whilst they might have kind of family resemblances within them, they are very different sets of practices, um, often very different emphases in these traditions. Now, my own particular stance, I just want to kind of own this right at the beginning of the retreat, my own particular stance goes right back to the very beginnings of it, right back to the original textual material, uh, as close as we can get, and I can't say hand on heart that is what the Buddha said, but as close, effectively, to what the Buddha said as we can get at a distance of two and a half thousand years. When we look at this tradition, it's prior, and I wouldn't even call it a tradition in many ways, when we look at this, it's, uh, we're looking at something which is prior to the growth of all these different dimensions of Buddhism. And it's basically occurring within India, as I say, two and a half thousand years ago. There is something about what this person who we call the Buddha taught that still continues to echo and resonate to this day and has had enormous influence, really, even what's going on in the West at the moment, you know, with the development of secular forms of mindfulness in, in the West. This is all coming out of that tradition, out of this two-and-a-half-thousand-year-old tradition, and particularly these early forms of the teaching. And that's what I'm going to be concentrating on this weekend. So we're looking at this very, very early strata, Um, as close as we can get to what the Buddha said. The one thing we do know from this person who we call the Buddha, bear in mind that the the word Buddha is not a name of somebody, it's an epithet. It wasn't just exclusively used towards the Buddhist tradition, it was actually used in relationship to other teachers within other traditions in India at that period. The word Buddha actually is a lovely word because it derives from a term in Pali and Sanskrit called Bodhi, which means to wake up. This is, in a sense, a lovely beginning place because what this tradition is asking you to do is not become a believer, to walk on a path of belief and faith and all the normal things that perhaps we think about in terms of religious traditions. I even hesitate to call it a religious tradition in this earliest phase. What it is a path of is a path of awakening. It's asking you to wake up. And the word Buddha is literally one who has woken up. 
if you pick up popular books on Buddhism, you'll probably come to a phrase which I think would be familiar to possibly most of you, that the Buddha gained enlightenment. He didn't, actually. What he did was wake up. And what he woke up to um, wasn't anything esoteric, wasn't anything metaphysical, and it certainly wasn't anything religious. What he woke up to was the way things actually are. This is the, actually the phrase that's used in the original language, yatabhutam, which is actually the way things are. And the way things are was you know, kind of realism. It's waking up to, if you like, the existential facts of our lives. Um, these might not be things that we want, but they're the way that they are. And it wasn't just a waking up to the way that they were, it's a learning to live, if you like, with the way that they are. Now, the first bit is a little easier, I think, seeing this is the way things are. The second bit is the bit that we really struggle with. I can see the way things are, perhaps, and I'll just touch on those briefly, yet I might find it extremely difficult to live with the way things are. The first of the way things are that the Buddha spoke about, that he woke up to, was that things were impermanent. They didn't remain the same. That includes you and I as well. We don't remain the same. We are as impermanent as any other phenomena in this world. Now, I don't say you've got to like that, and the Buddha didn't say you've got to like it, but that's the way it is. There's this realism to waking up to the sense that this world isn't really under our control at all. Even our own bodies, coming back to the theme of this weekend, which I'm going to move towards, even our own bodies, no matter what we try to do, even if we try to live really, really healthy lives, ultimately they're not under our control. Even really healthy people get the flu. They get sick. Most of us do. If I'm chopping vegetables and I cut myself, I will feel pain. This is the way things are. That body is impermanent. Just on a basic physical cellular level, every cell in the body is replaced every seven years. Does that make you really the same person? That's an interesting question, isn't it? If everything is changing in this way, So everything is changing, it's not under our control. Certain things are, but they're fairly minimal. Um, Change is Janus faced, it's two-faced, it looks in two different directions. There's the change that we can embrace, because it works for us. If the headache goes, that's a good idea, isn't it? If the pain of whatever injury is there ceases to throb, I'm really delighted about it work the opposite way around. I'm feeling fairly good and I get a headache. There's a change that doesn't work for me and possibly will resist it. I walk into the office and find I've been promoted. Good news. Walk into the office and find out I've got to take a salary cut. Not such good news. Let alone all of the other stuff, the stuff that's outside of us, you know, the changing environment, changing weather patterns, the financial spheres, these are not under our control and they're always changing. This was something the Buddha said, wake up to. 
wake up to that. Um, because if you look for something permanent, if you look for something stable, you are inevitably going to suffer in some way. Yeah, if we look for our bodies, to, for example, to, you know, to be as they are at a particular juncture in our lives and we want to keep them that way, then we're bound to suffer at some point because they're not going to. Yeah. They simply are not going to remain the same. Those around us will not remain the same either. If we desperately cling to trying to make things solid and stable, they kind of slip away from us. And so there was this realism. This is one of the things that we were asked to wake up to. And I hope you all hear this is not a difficult proposition to grasp, is it? Everything is impermanent. In fact, the Buddha wasn't even the first person to say this, or certainly not the only person to say this. Others in ancient societies were also saying this. Thinkers in Greece, at a you know, roughly similar period of time, were saying everything was changing. You know, nothing was remaining the same. Yet the difficulty comes, I hope you can see, is trying to live in permanence, isn't it? Yeah, that's the difficulty, that's the stumbling block, that's the practicality of it. As an intellectual proposition, everything is changing, it's not difficult to grasp. Being asked to live with changing life, changing body, changing circumstances, changing relationships. As you can probably, I hope, see, that this is the, one of the real difficulties that we have, that sense of trying to live with that. The second thing that the Buddha spoke about was that actually one of the other things you have to wake up to is that life contains pain. Yeah. Life contains pain. Yeah. Pain is unavoidable in our lives. Yeah. It's not always going to... You know, remain the same. It's almost intermixed with the first of these inquiries about change. So life is painful. Physically, we're wired in certain ways that you know, we can damage ourselves. There's physical pain. Mentally, we live under all kinds of stresses and pressures and things, and we see depression, for example, rising in the West, and not just in the West, worldwide. Yeah, it's, a, it's a worldwide epidemic of depression. And so we see that there is an increase of, of pain that perhaps some of it we have to wake up to. Now, the Buddha spoke about something else um, that we have to wake up to, what he calls dukkha. This is an untranslatable word, really. I mean, it's usually translated as suffering. But it means far more that. It means a kind of constant sense of dissatisfaction with things. So much so that we live driven lives looking often for some sense of satisfaction, some peace, some tranquility, relaxation, happiness, whichever word possibly occurs in your own vocabulary. These are the sorts of things we're often looking for. Sometimes we will get it, but then it will slip away. Yeah. And then that comes that sense of dissatisfaction again, and then we try to reinstate it, reinstate it, I should say. So it's slipping, and it's coming in and out of our experience. 
Now, some of this pain, actually pain is used in two senses here, this what I call pain which is unavoidable, often linked to physicality, to the ways that we are kind of made up as human beings. And then there is the sort of dukkha which is optional. So there can be pain, but there doesn't necessarily have to be dissatisfaction. And another way of stating that would be to say that there is an awful lot of difficulties in life that all of us will have to face. We all, at some stage, if we haven't done so already, face the loss of loved ones. We often face our own sicknesses, our own illnesses. Um, The tragedies that occur in our lives. And these are, in a sense, unavoidable. Often these things are very, very unavoidable. Yet, this particular form of pain that the Buddha thinks is optional is something we can, something we're actually often just adding to the experience of pain. You know, so there is the what, has, the what has happened and the embellishment that goes on around what has happened. The narratives, the stories, the emotional upset, the resistance that often goes on around that. So there's kind of pain which is unavoidable and dukkha which is optional here. The dissatisfaction that goes with that. There's a very clear story about this which is in one of these early texts which I refer to. And it refers to the Buddha walking along the road and in ancient India you wouldn't necessarily, certainly not, these ascetic communities of monks and nuns you wouldn't have worn sandals or anything on your feet. So he'd have been walking barefoot, and for certain reasons, which I won't go into, uh, the Buddha has a shard of stone which penetrates his foot. You know, again, there is no sense of this person being different from us. You know, he actually experiences pain. He gets illness, he gets sick, he has backache, he has dysentery, he has all the sorts of things that go with leading uh, quite a long life in ancient India. So he's walking along the road, and this piece of stone penetrates his foot. And it says in the text that gave the Buddha immense pain, but no dukkha. Yeah? Immense pain, but no dukkha. And what's really being said in that is that he, there's not all of that story-making that goes on around it. There's not all that resisting. You know? He's not going, why me and not the other monk? You know? Why did Joe Monk over there not step on it rather than me? You know, why is this happening to me? You, know, you can think of all the kind of resistances that often go uh, in ordinary life with something happening to you. It's sort of not so much, you know, why is this happening to me? Why not? <laughs> we are made up similarly. And if that other person steps on it, they'll get pain. If I happen to do it, I will get pain. And so dukkha is ever-present in our lives but we don't have to make it worse. There's often an image, some of you probably come across, of the image of two arrows. There's the first arrow which hits you, um, which is the thing that's happened, and there's the second one which you shove in willfully. <laughs> you, know, you do it to yourself, in other words. You create the pain for yourself. In other, you build it up. You put it almost under a magnifying glass. It's a bit like having a cavity and a tooth you keep sticking your tongue into just to see how painful it really is. 
And that's often what's going on uh, with the things that happen to us, the painful circumstances, the difficult situations that arise in our lives. In a sense, we keep poking it just to see how painful it is. But the poking that we do is often through mediums of language and uh, our narrativization of things. And the last thing that we have to wake up to, um, and I'll only touch on this very briefly because this could take a whole night if I went into this, which is that we are not fixed things in this world. What we call ourself isn't a fixed phenomena. We are changing. It's actually a direct correlate of that first thing that you wake up to. Wake up to impermanence, where you wake up to your own impermanence. That you are, in fact, a verb, not a noun. And it's interesting in the original text, when you look at a lot of the language in the original text, when it refers to things, it's always using them in verb forms. So things aren't really static. You and I are certainly not static. Um, and actually, I don't know if you realise this, this is actually really good news that you're not static because part of this path is about developing, it's about waking up. If you were a fixed sleepwalker, you couldn't wake up. Yeah. It's actually saying you have that capacity because you are not a fixed thing. You, you are an unfolding story and that story will unfold in certain ways dependent on the way, in a sense, you start to create that story, that story of your life, the things that you do in it, the ways that you incline your mind, what do you give your attention to. These will develop into a certain kind of unfolding in your life. And in fact, this very path that we call the Buddhist path, and it's not even a word I like, the word Buddhist, But when we have this path, this path is about a certain way of unfolding. Starting with things like those ethical inquiries. Certainly having as its one of its centrepieces this path of mindfulness. It's a key component, it's not the only component, but it's a key component of this waking up process. That we begin to actually turn up for our own lives and help to unfold it in a different way, perhaps, than it would do if we didn't start to direct mindful attention to dimensions of our life which we are often extremely blind to. So I hope you can see that this this notion of waking up is both literal and metaphorical. It's also a challenge. Because if this figure who... As I say, the epithet Buddha, if this figure has woken up, the implication is that most of us are sleepwalkers. You know, we might occasionally open an eye, uh, but then we fall back to sleep again. You know, it's kind of like this. We're falling back to sleep. So we don't actually begin to see things. Um, and so the challenge is there for us all to wake up. And that was what the Buddha basically was saying. You know, Everybody here, everybody in this room, everybody who engages with this path has this capacity. Even if they never make it, they still have the capacity 
to wake up, for life to be different, to life to be held with all of its difficulties, but not necessarily having that second arrow, not necessarily creating and creating other forms of dukkha, inflicting wounds on ourselves that don't have to be there. So this is really what this path of mindfulness is about. It has a big issue. The big issue in Buddhist terms is liberation, freedom. However, when we hear that word freedom in the West, we often have a particular image of it. It's usually the freedom to do things. That's how we think of freedom. Freedom to do this and to do that and to do what I want. That's often what freedom is equated with. The Buddha's notion of freedom was a freedom from. He said it was a freedom from the affliction of greed, the affliction of aversion, hatred, and the affliction of delusion. That's what you were freeing yourself from. Ultimately, delusion, ignorance, were what you were waking up from. That was the sleep that was spoken about. It was the sleep of ignorance. The sleep of delusion. And so when he spoke about freedom, it was a freedom from, not a freedom to. And I think it's always worth bearing that in mind. So if you've ever thought, I'd like to be free of a certain amount of craving and greed in my life, certainly all the hates and resentments and irritations and aversions that often crowd our lives so much, often the turning away from things, not the ability to turn towards them, which is actually the hallmark of delusion as well. Aversion and delusion often go very closely together, as does greed. They both arise out of it. So, if you've ever wanted to be free of those things, if you've ever thought, I'd actually like a little bit more peace and tranquility, where I'm not just reaching out and trying to grab something or trying to push something away, and just ignoring a whole load of other stuff I really don't want to know about, if you've ever wanted to be free of those things, this is what the Buddha was talking about. Pursuing a path whereby we can free ourselves of those psychological afflictions. Because that's what they are, they're psychological afflictions. All of the psychology that they spoke about, and I often say to the students who I teach, the Buddha in many ways was the first psychologist or certainly the first person who starts to talk about the mind in any depth. Um, this is what demarcates him very much from other traditions, even in ancient India, was he's had so much of a focus of the mind, on the mind. Well, he looked at the mind in a particular way. Um, it wasn't psychology in the sense of cognitive psychology, as we can see it in the West these days. It wasn't this disinterested look in the mind. It was an extremely interested look in the mind, because he wanted the mind to develop in a certain way towards wholesomeness, skillfulness, to move away from that which was unskillful. So when we start looking at anger and irritation, these things are not bad, they're just unskillful. They're unwholesome ways. They leave us often feeling terrible when we have them. 
as you know, Christina Feldman, who I often teaches here, says, you know, it's not, you know, we don't wake up on a day and say, oh, this is a really good day out to go out and be angry. <laughs> you know, if we end up feeling angry, we usually end up feeling quite depressed or certainly you know, low mood at the end of it. So we've got to think that often we're trying to do our best, but we just actually end up being very unskillful in our lives. So this is a path of psychological development that move towards skillfulness and developing and identifying that which is already there in our minds, which is skillful. Those things that we do. The wonderful thing that I always thought about the Buddha's teaching when I first came across it, which was many, many, many years ago, was that he wasn't trying to get us to import into our minds dimensions which aren't already there. So if we start talking about generosity, which is one of the virtues he speaks about, most of us have been generous at some point in our lives. Most of us have had a calm mind at some point in our lives. Sometimes we've gained insight, don't necessarily live with it or do anything about it, we often have these glimpses of the way things are. We've certainly been kind, we've certainly been friendly. These are not unknown states, are they? Well, I hope they're not to you. You We've nearly all had them, but we don't have them often enough. And if we do have them, they're usually restricted in their scope to a very small number of people. So we say take one virtue, which I often speak about in this room, which is the virtue of friendliness, which in, in the Buddhist tradition is called metta, is actually boundless friendliness. You'll see it translated as loving kindness, which is an absolutely terrible translation of this term, because uh, it actually derives from a term which means to befriend something. So friendliness as a virtue. Well, most of us are friendly yeah, to certain friends and relatives and that, but it doesn't spread very wide. It doesn't have that boundlessness you know, whereby we confront a stranger with an open, friendly attitude. We don't even approach our own minds with an open, friendly attitude. And so this is what we're developing, is friendliness outwardly and inwardly. Actually, inwardly to develop it outwardly um, is first what we're developing. Now, all of this is a very long-winded way of getting to say, actually, one of the things that we're developing which also we have from time to time, but again, it's not particularly well developed, is a quality of mindfulness. Being in the present. Mindfulness, just for kind of put a historical gloss on it, mindfulness is a term that was coined in 1881 um, by the first Western translators of of some of these early texts. (coughs) Somebody called um, William Rhys Davids who is a founder of something called the Pali Tech Society, who coined this word in 1881, mindfulness. It's now a word you can't escape from, as you've probably gathered. You can see it on um, advertising hoardings, and certainly every book from mindful beer brewing to gardening, or whatever it is. So it's become kind of ubiquitous. Uh, and, of course, there is this whole secular form of mindfulness which is out there. I'm kind of stuck with the word mindfulness, particularly in the areas where I work, Um, But it's a word I, in a sense, would like you to hear slightly differently. The word in in Pali 
um, which is one of these original languages that um, the Buddha's words are recorded in. The original word in Pali is the word sati. It's a very simple word. Um, This word sati has the connotation of remembering something. But it's not historical memory. When we think about remembering, we're often thinking about going into the past and remembering something that's happened in the past. What the Buddha is speaking about remembering is actually remembering to be present at this moment in time. I kind of used it in a very loose sense of showing up for your own life, showing up for that which is occurring to you right now. A kind of translation of the word sati, which would give it better justice rather than one word. In translations in the West, we tend to be fond of one-word translations as opposed to little phrases. But sometimes the only way you can capture these things is in little phrases. So this word, which we're calling mindfulness would be better translated as present moment recollection. So you're recollecting what you're doing in this present moment. What is the texture of your life at this moment in time? What is present for you? Could be in thoughts, could be in feelings, could be in images, but certainly coming to the theme of what we're dealing with this weekend, what is it like to be here embodied? at this moment in time. Throughout the history, both East and West, there's often been this division between mind and body. Descartes is the classic example in Western thought. Becoming so disembodied, he can't actually get mind and body back together again in his philosophy. Finds it very, very difficult having divided it into a thinking thing and an extended thing to get them back together again. And so we end up with this mind body dualism, which sounds very philosophical and very technical, but it isn't. Actually, that's often the way people relate to themselves as a mind and body. Interestingly, again, in the original language, we don't have a conjunction, we don't have an and. It's just usually referred to as mind body or body-mind, actually. Now, that the body is important is attested to, again, very much in the Buddha's teaching. The ways of developing, the ways of founding mindfulness, I'm stuck with that word, but please do hear it as this present moment recollection, the ability to really be here at this moment, to be with whatever is occurring, and I'll say a lot more about this, as we go through tomorrow and the day after. This ability is founded on bodily experience, embodied experience. It's absolutely crucial. There's a classic text in this early Buddhist tradition, which is generally translated as the four ways of founding mindfulness. And we start with mindfulness of body. It's called Kaya Anapasana. This is a close seeing. This word, this little word in Pali Anapasana, which means is is a, a way of seeing, beginning to really see bodily experience. Yeah. It's all founded on that. These early forms of the Buddhist teaching, before they get developed historically in all these other cultures and that 
all speak of a consciousness which is an embodied consciousness. It's not consciousness floating around somewhere, disembodied and detached from the body. The body is the locus of experience. And that locus of experience is giving us information all the time. Sometimes your body knows more than your minds do. Very, very much more clearly. The Buddha has speaks about this so strongly in one of these big sets of texts. I mean, they're huge volumes, uh, some of these texts. Thousands and thousands of discourses that the Buddha has said to give, given in the course of his lifetime. In one of these texts, the Buddha says, the person who doesn't have mindfulness of body will not gain liberation. He says it slightly differently, but I'm just, it's pretty well the gist of what he's saying. He says in another place, the person who does not have mindfulness of body has mind, no mindfulness at all. Yeah. This is how important it is. So it's not a kind of arbitrary when I chose to do a weekend on you know, embodying mindfulness. This is really the, the, the starting place and the end place of the Buddha's teaching embodied experience of us moving through life as body minds some of you might even know the opposite of this which is encapsulated in a lovely little phrase in one of James Joyce's stories in Dubliners when he talks a bit about a particular character called Mr. Duffy uh, Mr. Duffy is said lives at some distance from his body uh, it's a classic way that often people in the West do. I mean, I've worked a lot in academic communities. I see a lot of academics who live at a lot of distance from their body. You know, they really don't have that embodied experience whatsoever. So this embodied experience is really our primal way of being here, isn't it? If we think about this, does it make sense? This is our primary way of being in this world. Yeah. Yet somehow we're often trying to evade it this primacy of physicality in our experience. You know, elevating the mind. Elevating the mind into something which it's not. Yeah. In fact, can we even really speak about, you know, we start talking about body-mind, a mind that's somehow superior to what is going on in terms of our bodily felt experience. And I really mean felt experience because this, this body in terms of its senses is palpating, literally, that word palpating, to touch. You know, it's touching all of those different fields of experience, isn't it? The visual experience, the auditory experience, the taste of things, the gustatory. Yeah. All of these senses are, are really in touch with different elements of our senses. Our senses are giving us those information. We, in a sense, palpate the world. We can see the world in different ways. We can touch that world in different ways. Um, And I'm sure we've all had that experience. We can touch it with (coughs) eyes which are hungry, eyes which are greedy, wanting things, Wanting, wanting that thing in the window of the shop, wanting that extra you know, piece of chocolate or piece of food, 
and our eyes are really looking for that. We look for the world to give us something. And yet we can also look at the world and touch it with friendliness. We can also touch it with compassion and kindness as well. Same world, different eyes. Different embodied experience. We know the world of language that we speak of as body language, which is the, the gestural sense of our being in this world and how different those gestures are you know, that reflect, for example, aggression and violence, um, hatred, pushing things away, and that which is friendly and welcoming and you know, the body which is open and receptive. Yeah. So this is an enormously important dimension of our experience. And this is why it's right at the forefront. And so, kind of, let me wind it up for this evening and we'll just do a brief sit, just to you know, quieten down before we go to bed. But what we'll be exploring this weekend, and I'll be encouraging you to do it just in your, not in the formal sitting sessions, but when you, you know, for example, when you have the breaks when we have the lunch period, you know, when you have those small in, you know, areas in the day, those demarcated areas where you're left on your own and isn't part of the schedule, I'd be encouraging you to really look, see, eating, to really taste and look at texture, the experience, the embodied experience of eating by noticing what's going on, not just eating as we often do, which is often fairly mindless, with not a lot of attention, not a lot of awareness there. So I'm going to be encouraging you to look at various dimensions of your bodily felt experience and to start to pay attention to them in this weekend. And obviously in the formal practices of sitting and walking and sitting and walking as we go, go through this weekend. Okay, I think that's probably enough of that. I've probably beaten you into submission, I would think, at this point. So, if we can just um, come to our seats, wherever you're sitting on the floor, on chairs, or kneeling stools. I'll say more about this in the morning, but I just want to just touch on it as we sit. And we pay attention to our posture. <coughs> when we adopt a certain posture of either sitting on the floor, cross-legged, with the spine upright, with the head balanced, with the hands and arms in a comfortable position, This posture itself that we adopt can be, as I say, sitting on the floor, but it's also there if we're sitting on a chair, keeping that straight spine. When we adopt this, we adopt an embodied intention. We might think of an intention as being some kind of shadowy mental phenomenon. It's not. It's here as we adopt this posture. This is the embodied intention. And what is the embodiment of? It's the embodiment of wishing for this period, and very short, 
to stay awake, to be receptive, and to be alert and aware of what is arising in our experience at this moment. And it's good to check our bodies in terms of this particular position because often we see the loss of intention as the spine starts to crumple a little bit, the shoulders become a little more rounded, the head droops. And then we know that we've kind of lost that receptiveness, that alertness, that awareness. be aware just of little sensations arising in the body and passing away. And particularly the sensation of breathing embodied sensation, the texture of your life in breath. That as you sit here at this moment, you sit with the breath, the body breathing. experience that body breathing with the expansion and contraction of the chest. Subtle movements, if we pay attention, that we can often experience. But just that sense of the ever-present breath coming and going not being controlled. And if your mind strays, that's not a problem. It's pulled out sound, my thoughts, feelings, in a way say hello to those things, acknowledge them and then come back to the sense of the body breathing, just gently returning. and doing that as many times as you have to.
just being with that gentle coming and going of the breath experienced in the body and all the sensations that go with breathing Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.